Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Thanks so much, Darlene. It is catch and shoot. Otto is out today, so the great Bruce Bernstein is sitting in. But coming up on today's show, we talk with the one and only Fred Katz of The Athletic, who does a great job covering the Washington Wizards. We'll talk about the big deal that the Wiz made. We'll also talk about Scott Brooks. But before we get to all that, Bruce, how's it going? Uh, It's going great, Aaron. Here in uh, New England, it's about 34 degrees today, freezing my you-know-what off. But uh, we're talking basketball, and that always warms our hearts. I, I was going to say, I feel you because it is a nice, brisk 55-degree day here in Central Florida. And I know your love for Florida because it's always warm, and you, you traditionally like this state. But it's been chilly, man. We've gotten a little bit of rain. You know, I feel like I'm up there living in the Northeast. So you brought some of that cold down here. Hey, sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk to Fred Katz later on in this show, and we're going to talk about one big deal that the Houston Rockets made, not only sending out Russell Westbrook, but bringing in John Wall. Now, conversely, training camps did get underway this week. Their biggest star, James Harden, decided not to report until today, which is a Tuesday that we record this show. This whole Houston Rockets situation has been a wild off season, right? From not only turning over their head coach, to turning over their GM, a disgruntled star, you ship out another one. But I I don't understand what James Harden's beef is right now. Some guys seem like they're only happy when they're unhappy. And I'm not saying that that's been the entire pattern of his career. But what's the deal with the Diva Act? I mean, come on. This is, you know, you have been living in basketball nirvana for the last number of years where you've had everything go your way, but what have you won? Really, you made it to the conference finals once, okay? You're going to be in the Hall of Fame. You got more money than God. You should want to win, but it's like, you know what? You're just going about it in such an unprofessional way, Aaron, and I just, I can't say I'm really disappointing in him because I've never really been a huge fan of his. I don't like watching him play. Although at the same time, I'll recognize his greatness as an offensive player. But, you know, you got a rookie coach, Stephen Silas, who by all accounts is a great guy. He put in a lot of time as an assistant to get this chance. And you're dropping a turd in the punch bowl for him. James, you know, not good. I was going to say the least you can do. And I think every 
NBA player, every professional athlete has a responsibility to the contract that they signed with a team. And at the same thing, it's like for any normal person, when they're disgruntled with their job, they're still going to go into work, right? Like you're still going to go into work. You're going to go about your day. You might actively look for different places to work while you're at work, right? Like you might send out resumes while you're sitting in your cubicle looking for somewhere new. But at the end of the day, you still go and you do the job to the best of your ability each and every day because you need that reference. James Harden doesn't seem to understand that. Like Houston controls him at this point. Like they can decide what situation he's put in, who he's playing with on the court, where he goes from here. Because at the end of the day, they have to make a decision that works for them. And that makes sense for their basketball personnel. And if the decision that they made was to send out Russell Westbrook and his contract and to acquire John Wall to see how that would work and to see if that could make him happy, then that was made with the best interest of that franchise in mind. And the least that he can do is to try and make this situation work. And if it doesn't, if they play 30 games and it's clear that it's not working, then they can revisit this. I am not the cynical type most of the time. However, I think this diva act that he's pulling is very calculated move on his part to try and drive his trade value down so that Houston will decide, you know what, we just got to get rid of this guy and they will take, you know, maybe pennies on the dollar compared to what his actual market value is worth uh, because he's trying to force his way out of town. It's like, you know what, if I'm running the Houston Rockets, and I'm not even sure who the GM, the GM's name is now, I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but they should basically tell him, you know what, you're here. And if, and if your diva act is going to be this way, you might just be looking at some reduced minutes, okay? And we can, you know, see how you, how you feel about that. My hope, my fervent hope is that he gets his wish, that he gets the trade, to Brooklyn, okay, so that he and Kyrie Irving can decide who's going to dribble the ball more. And Kevin Durant, who I have the utmost respect for and a big fan of, I believe he's a winner, will be on the side looking at that. And I would imagine he might be like, nah. That would be the best reality TV show in the NBA is if you get those two guys running side by side and then KD kind of tweeting through his burner account. You know, that's, I mean, that's must-see TV. By the way, the general manager, because I looked this up, of the Houston Rockets is now Raphael Stone, who was their AGM. So, but, so here's, here's what makes this difficult, is even if he drives his market value down to pennies on the dollar, an acquiring team still has to send out enough money in return to get him back. And so even if the Rockets wanted to trade him, there are so few suitors out there for him that if he pulls this act, that they could think, why am I going to engage in a guy who's run off two stars already? His initial team traded him one that was mainly because they couldn't afford everybody and they had to get rid of somebody and Harden was the odd man out. But he's never won anything besides personal accolades. Like if I'm an acquiring team and I have to ship out all these assets just to get him back and I see him acting this way, that's not someone I want to take on. I don't want to take on that baggage. 
you know, the trade we're going to talk about a little further ahead in the show, the, the Russell Westbrook, uh, John Wall trade, those were two $40 million guys that could be traded for each other. I can't remember another trade where a 40 million guy was traded for another 40 million guy. Harden is a 40 million to, guy. To, yeah. You would have to find somebody else that had signed that supermax. And to my knowledge, I think those are the only two guys that have put pen to paper so far on those. James, enjoy Houston. You can, you can average 49 points a game, and your playoff results will be very similar to what we uh, have seen from you before. So, Aaron, let's talk about the anti-James Harden, the man who's conducted himself exemplary fashion his entire career and is looking to continue doing so well into the future. That would be Stephen Curry of the Golden State Warriors. He's, he's almost boring, right? Like, as good of a player as he is, he's just a role model for everybody, you know, from the shoes, the brand, to how he treats the organization that put a lot of faith in him at number eight when they picked him. And, you know, those early years when he was having all the ankle issues. But this is very reminiscent of a guy who knows that he's already gotten his big payday. He knows that he has the endorsements, the deals, those aren't going anywhere. And he's comfortable with where he is in life. He's comfortable with the team. But while he's there, he wants to make sure that they have a little bit of flexibility in one, signing the guys that are already there, the guys that have helped make some of those championship runs a reality. And two, potentially bringing in people to this roster. And he's still going to get a massive payday. Like just because you talk about maybe making a little bit of a hometown discount, that might be a million or $2, which, you know, for an NBA roster goes a very, very long way per year. But it's, it's noticeable that winning players routinely make those kind of sacrifices. Like the number one person who did it for all those years was Tom Brady, right? Like Brady continuously took less as a quarterback in a quarterback driven league so that the new England Patriots could put people around him. Uh, Patrick Mahomes has structured his new deal in a way where, you know, his salary comes mostly on the back end and there's a chance for him to restructure it down the road championship level players get it that they can't do it on their own and in a capped league that the only way that they can be successful is if the front office has enough money where they can fill spots around them and the basketball version of tom brady also did the same thing and that of course is tim duncan who yep. won five championships in in san antonio did the same thing always wanted to be there wanted to start as a spur end as a spur and always acted in a very uh, team-oriented, management-friendly way, uh, which uh, was one of the reasons he's so widely respected. All right, real quick, before we get to Fred, I wanted to ask your opinion. So uh, Kyrie Irving, the aforementioned, was on Kevin Durant, aforementioned podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and talked about how, you know, I'm so happy to be your teammate, KD, because I finally got a guy next to me that I trust in the clutch more than myself. And I thought to myself, you are tripping, dude. I don't understand it. Like, what is his beef with LeBron? He won a championship with LeBron. And the main reason they won that championship was because of LeBron's block at the end of Game 7 against the Warriors. Like, there's no more clutch player, no more just tough, I'm going to go beat you one-on-one -on -one at the end of a basketball game than LeBron James. Like, I... I don't understand why he's trying to fuel this fire with LeBron, who was so good to him 
for those three years that they played together in Cleveland. I mean, there were numerous times where LeBron would walk off the floor, uh, Doris or someone would grab him for a post-game interview, and he would acknowledge the role that Kyrie played as his running mate. And eventually, if they would have stayed together, when Kyrie would have kind of taken that next step and supplanted LeBron. I, I don't, I can't imagine a teammate that he was better to than Kyrie. LeBron James put a lot of money in Kyrie Irving's pocket, not only because of the success they had as a team, but in uh, helping Kyrie get a signature sneaker with Nike. There were not a lot of guys in the NBA that have a signature shoe. And I know for a fact, because LeBron told the one of the Lakers podcasts recently, he intervened with Nike and said, you got to give this kid, meaning Kyrie, back when it happened, he was a kid, he's a little bit older now, you got to give this kid a signature shoe because the, the, the younger you know, fans are all following this guy. So Kyrie, um, you know, you might be talented as heck, but uh, you know, you still have an awful lot to learn and, and you may never even learn it. Yeah, it's going to be fun to follow. All right, Bruce, you ready to talk a little bit of hoops that's going on in our nation's capital? Oh, absolutely. Let's get to it. That was dope. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome on Fred Katz. He is the beat writer for The Athletic covering the Washington Wizards, and he is also the host of the great podcast, Wizards After Dark. First off, Fred, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. How's it going? It's going, uh, it's going quite busily. Shockingly, I've had a lot to do these last five or six days. Who would have thought? How much more difficult has all this been made by the fact that you can't attend shoot-arounds, you can't attend practices, you're doing all this from your house right now while you're trying to cover one of the biggest trades in Wizards history? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, not to sound tone deaf, because I think we all have about uh, 980 million problems that are greater than, uh, you know, covering a basketball trade, but but there's there's some impeding. Like, to some degree, there's some impeding because you're – you know, when you're walking around the practice facility or you're walking around the arena, you're seeing people in person. It's not just like your only interaction is in the scrum. You're, you're, you're talking to people, you're getting your pulse on what's going on. You're saying hi to the random people who work in the building. And not only that, but you know, media availability over zoom is about as personal as every other interaction that we have over zoom where there's just, there's there's it's like 75 percent of a real interaction and that's only because our brains are all dumb enough to trick us into thinking it's that large you know in reality it's just not the same thing so so it's it's not quite the same um that being said uh i've been bunkered up in my house for nine months and i don't plan on ever leaving again so i'm 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 fine with it and on top of that i mean this is kind of a trade it technically went down in training camp it probably would have gone down in the off season if this were a normal off season, right? It it, it yeah. technically happened a couple weeks after free agency started, which this this feels like a mid to late July trade, like kind of along the lines of when Westbrook got traded for Chris Paul, and that goes down in the middle of July. So I'm not in the building when when those sorts of trades go down anyway. That's still two months or so, two and a half months before the season starts, regardless. So. So, so it's, uh, you know, it's not so bad. And, and look, when your team trades away a local legend and gets back a future Hall of Famer, you got a lot to talk about anyway. Yeah, let's, let's start with, you know, John Wall had been there since 2010, 1-1 pick. How difficult of a decision was that for the franchise and Tommy Shepard to part with him? And just on the back end of that, was it essentially 
picking Brad Beal over John Wall? Is that kind of what the consensus was? They couldn't have both. They had to have one or the other. Uh, I don't know if I would reduce it to that degree, uh, but I, I do think that they valued Beal over Wall. Um, I do think there were a lot of emotions in trading Wall. I also think from a basketball perspective, it's a trade they felt like they had to make. I think they consider Russell Westbrook a better player than Wall. I think they consider his floor, like the worst case scenario for Westbrook, which is given the fact that he's on a supermax contract, you know, the worst case scenario for Westbrook is not exactly the greatest value outcome, but I think they consider the worst case scenario for Westbrook well above what the worst case scenario for Wall is considering he's on an identical deal and he hasn't played in two years. Plus, not only has he not played in two years, he's coming back from arguably the most difficult lower leg injury that a basketball player can have and that he, you know, ruptured his Achilles. So I, I think from a basketball perspective, they were thinking this is worth it. And, and they were kind of, um, they, were, they were negotiating over the picks where Houston wanted a lighter protected pick or more picks or younger, young players that they have or something along those lines, you know, something that can give them future value to entice them taking on Wall's deal. And eventually they just came to a point where that, that pick was, you know, I should say heavily protected enough to where the Wizards said, okay, we, we believe this is worth upgrading the point guard. And, and I think they genuinely agree that this was really just a basketball trade that happened to loop in a lot of emotional ties. That's really where I wanted to go with the next question, Fred. I mean, because you covered the basketball aspects of it very well. But John had really become a fixture in the community and was beloved by Wizards fans. How are the fans taking his departure i think the fan base is generally upset i think the fan base is probably upset i mean the analogy that i've made so i'm a i'm a huge baseball fan right and i'm a huge yankees fan just diehard yankees fan since i was a little kid and i grew up in the 90s in new york so naturally my childhood hero was Derek jeter Let's take go back to the time since before the Yankees traded for Alex Rodriguez, right? And let's say it's like 2001. The Yankees have just won four out of five World Series. And I loved Derek Jeter more than I loved my own parents. Like, I loved Derek Jeter more than anything. And I was 11 years old, and I would have done anything for Derek Jeter, right? If they turned around and traded Jeter for Alex Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez was objectively the better player. And there was no arguing it. He was the best shortstop of his generation and better at Jeter than everything, right? I would have been furious. I would have been miserable. And I would have been depressed about it. And I think you can understand the intellect behind something and still not be behind the emotions of something. And I think that's mostly where Wizards fans are at with this, where you mention it. I mean, Wall won the Community Sist Award with the Wizards. He is incredibly active in the community. And this is a city where being active in the community, being political, those sorts of things, I think are valued higher. Look, I don't think you're going to find a city where people say, no, we don't want people helping us out. We don't want people helping underprivileged people. Get that guy away. I don't think you're finding that. But I think for every obvious reason, DC tends to value those sorts of things. They tend to value those sorts of statements. And John, I mean, even just this past summer, he just raised like $600,000 or close to it for underprivileged families who were unable to pay their rent 
as a fall off from the coronavirus and during this economic crisis. And he is doing stuff like that all the time. He's helping underserved communities in DC all the time and going out of his way to do it. And I think that on top of the fact that his personality kind of uh, reflects parts of the city's personality, his kind of uh, unabashedness and, and his uh, just kind of the ruggedness with which he plays, with which he acts, I think the city feels that really reflected the city. And that that was a, a kind of like with, uh, you know, Zach Randolph and Tony Allen in Memphis. There are some guys where the personality just fits the city. I think John's personality and obviously everything he did fit the city so well. And um, the city really fell in love with him to a degree that I think people on the national side don't realize. Um, on top of that, the Wizards had no success before they drafted him. They won one <laughs> playoff series in 30 years. I mean, that is a disaster. One playoff series in 30 years they won, and they won three with him. So it doesn't feel like a lot because it's not exactly like they're going to the conference finals. They never did it. They came close, but they never did it. But compared to what they had before Wall, I mean, they won the most with him that they did over the last 40 years. Uh, so, So a lot of young fans, not even young fans, I mean, someone who's 50 years old who wouldn't have been old enough to appreciate the, the Bullets championship in 1978, someone who's, who's 50 years old might be thinking, John Wall gave me my best years as a Wizards fan. So what's not to love? <laughs> you know, and, and Fred, I, I kind of mentioned this just at the top when we brought you on, and I, I mentioned it in just kind of a jokingly way, but you know, when you put it in context like that, was this the biggest trade the Wizards have made in their franchise's history? Is, is that safe to say? I don't know if it's safe to say, but I think you can make a good argument for it. Um, I mean, I think the, the other trade that has a really big argument would be the Chris Webber trade. Um, that would be up there. And uh, there's also the one that brought the Melvin Hayes in 1972, 73. Uh, obviously, that was a Bullets trade. Uh, but, you know, 72, 73, it brings the Melvin Hayes. And, and Melvin Hayes is, you know, a legendary player and a Hall of Famer. And that trade eventually got them a title where he was arguably the best player on that team. I think a lot of people would say Wes Unseld as well, but you can make an argument. He was the best player on the one team that brought them a title. So I think you can make arguments for either of those, but when we're talking about trades that were made 50 years ago, uh, then, then (laughs) yes, I, I think, I think it's a very reasonable argument. If somebody wants to make that argument, yeah, considering what John meant to the organization, what he meant to the city, he's a five-time All-Star, Westbrook's an MVP, a nine-time All-NBA guy. I think he's a nine-time All-Star as well. I mean, those are major, major resumes. Yeah, and to hit on a player like that at 1-1, I mean, it happens sometimes, but to have someone who fits perfectly with the culture and the brand of your city, it doesn't happen all the time. Now, from Bradley Beal's perspective, because I saw a lot of these two guys playing against the Magic on a lot of games and watching those two guys play together and the way they played off each other was fun to watch when they were both healthy. How much of this deal was there's a sense of urgency with Bradley Beal approaching free agency in two years and a need to keep him happy and to keep this team competitive? I think it was a big part of it. And, and I think, honestly, like, 
having to win in the kind of what I brought up earlier with the Wizards believe this trade makes them better. It's all tied in. I mean, I think what Brad has said to them is he wants to win games and he doesn't want to start winning games a year from now. They lost 50 games two years ago. They played at a 50 loss pace last year and would have lost 50 if the season ended up being 82 games. You know, I, I don't think he wants to go through that again. Actually, I take that back. I know he doesn't want to go through that again because he explicitly says he doesn't want to go through that again. He's got two years left on his deal before he can become a free agent. He has not told them that he wants out. In fact, he's told them the opposite. I think all things being equal, he'd like to stay. Now, the reason that puts pressure on the Wizards is because they have to create the decision now. They're the situation now where all things become equal. And right now, they're not. There are teams out there which could give Bradley Beal a better basketball situation. They are trying to push themselves to where, okay, how can we make this work? How can we put him on a team that will win enough to satisfy his basketball ones with what he wants from life, which Brad is a guy who I think really values, kind of similar to Damian Lillard, or at least I don't know Damian Lillard personally, but at least judging off of what he says and you know how he seems to comport himself all the time from afar, he's somebody who, who really believes in the concept of staying with one team for a while, staying with the team that drafted you. There's a lot of value in that. And, and there's a lot of emotional equity in being able to stay with that team and eventually win something. Now that last part is maybe the most important part. So I don't want to make that a throwaway line. You have to eventually win something. I don't think he's trying to stay with the same team forever and lose, but this Westbrook trade is part of a greater thing which is the Wizards are trying to put themselves, they're kind of treading a line where they know they can't throw away their future. I do not consider them candidates to throw in two or three first-round picks into a deal for something that's going to be a short-term upgrade. Like, I don't think they're going to make a Nets-Celtics, you know, Garnett-Pierce trade. They're, they're not candidates to do that, and that's why we didn't see this Westbrook trade go down until a few weeks after the negotiations first started because the Wizards didn't want to give up all that stuff just to upgrade a point guard. But they're kind of treading this line where they don't want to throw away their future, but they definitely want to get better today. And part of the reason they so badly want to get better today is because Bradley Beal would also like them to get better today. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Russ, formerly uh, owner of the number zero uniform, but I believe he's now going to wear number four in DC, maybe out of respect to uh, Gilbert Arenas's legacy there, I suppose. That might've been something I read in one of your columns, Fred. I'm not positive about that. But um, Scotty Brooks coach had him in Oklahoma City. And we all know that Russ has this sort of legendary fire and intensity in, in, in his game, which according to my pal, Tim Legler uh, of ESPN, former Washington Bullet, can sometimes push him into making some very emotional, poor decisions in the course of a game. Uh, I'm assuming Coach Brooks and Russ are simpatico and all that. So how do you see this as a fit? Is he going to be the leader of this team? I think if Russell Westbrook's on your team, I think he is the, he is the number one guy on your team. If Russell Westbrook's on your team, it's his team. You know, I covered Russell for a couple of years because I used to be on the Thunder beat. And so – I'm very aware of that Scott Brooks, Russell Westbrook relationship. And one of the things about it that I find really interesting, I'm actually writing a piece on it that'll come out. I don't know when the podcast is coming out, but this will come out at some point midweek or, or late week this week over at the athletic DC 
And one of the things that I find so fascinating about the relationship is that Russ and Scotty will go at each other. So Scotty, mostly Scotty going at Russ, honestly, from, from what I've been told about behind the scenes scenes. And Russ just takes it. You know, I spoke to somebody recently who was telling me Scotty will go at Russ and Russ responds pretty much every time in a positive way. And it's a way, I think Scotty keeps him accountable. Uh, and I think part of the reason why is because when Russ first came into the league, Scotty dug so hard into this is my guy. This is my point guard. You know, we had that quote where he says, uh, you know, maybe he's not your guy's point guard, but he's my point guard. Uh, he dug so hard into it. And, and I think Russell really valued how much Scotty genuinely believed in him. And I think they have a lot of similar principles in the way that they approach basketball. You know, Scott Brooks played in the NBA for 10 years, and he's two inches shorter than I am. And there is no reason that guy should have played in the NBA for 10 years, and he will tell you that. He will openly tell you there's no reason that he should have played in the NBA for 10 years, but the reason he didn't is because he was crazy scrappy, he was crazy dirty, and that's he, he is the only person, by the way, who I know who played in the NBA or plays in the NBA who describes himself as dirty talks about his dirty moves with pride <laughs> gets so excited about oh yeah you know when i boxed out big man i'd step on their toes and i'd throw elbows into patrick ewing's uncomfortable spots and you know he joked to me once that the biggest disadvantage that they had was uh they didn't know i didn't care if they hit me back so he would he would he would play that way and i think russell is the superstar version of the guy who plays the way Scotty views the game. So I think they, they have a lot of similarities in how they view the game, how they want it to be played, the intensity and work ethic at which they approach it. And they, I, from everything that I've gathered, it, it sounds like they have a really fabulous relationship. And I think that could be, a, a, I mean, I don't see how that would be a bad thing for them. I mean, that sounds like, I, I think that would, that's kind of the best case scenario right yeah absolutely i mean anytime a point guard is on the same page with his coach you want that camaraderie but th there's another layer of it too there's also that relationship between beal and westbrook and that's going to be incredibly interesting to watch over the course of the season how do they expect those two to serve as running mates and kind of what's their plan and you know will their personalities clash at all because what i know about beal from his time in and at the University of Florida and then his few years in the league, he's a pretty quiet guy where Westbrook's a little bit more animated on the court. Yeah, I think, I think Brad has evolved from that, to be honest. I did, I did a story at the end of last year about how Brad kind of went from being a really quiet guy to a vocal room leader. He's become kind of a yeller. Um, he's become that kind of strong locker room leader. And to be honest, I don't think it's always – Sometimes I feel like it's a little forced because yeah. I think his natural personality, like you're definitely right that his natural disposition is I'm quiet. He's reserved. He's more of a listener than, than somebody who's going to like go at you vocally. That's his natural disposition. So I think he's putting himself in, 
in that position because he is the guy at the top of the locker room and he knows at moments guys have to be like that. And so I do think he's definitely changed and become more com- uh, confident and comfortable in that role over the years. But he, he's not necessarily, um, you know, there's kind of a mix. Russell will be loud and boisterous. The thing that I, I think is interesting about the two of them is they're both wildly competitive. I don't necessarily worry that much about their personalities not matching up, to be honest, because, I mean, when I covered Russell, he played with Kevin Durant, he played with Paul George, he played with Carmelo Anthony, he played with Victor Oladipo, uh, you know, obviously then he went to Houston and, and he played with James Harden. For the most part, you know, there were uncomfortable moments with Kevin Durant, but, but for the most part, with the other stars, he had a pretty good relationship. He, he's, he's good buddies with Paul George. He's, you know, he had a great relationship with Melo and really looked up to him. The issues that you saw tended to be on the court issues. So I, I don't really think that there are, like, I'm not too concerned about any sort of personality issue or anything like that. If it happens, you know, this is the NBA. Sometimes stars don't get along, but I'm not necessarily like going out of my way to predict it, you know, and, and the on-court stuff is what I'm more curious to see. Like I could see Beal go more in the direction of Paul George, where Paul George had his, the best season of his career next to Westbrook. Or maybe it could be kind of a Harden situation where you think Bradley Beal should be dribbling the ball a little bit more maybe in moments, or, or maybe it just feels like more of a my turn, your turn. Or to turn it over, it could be more of a Beal Wall situation where like, again, it just, they were very your turn, my turn, didn't work off each other as seamlessly as they could have. And I think we're just going to have to wait and see which way the coaching staff plays it and which way those two guys play it uh, to see exactly how natural they are. Yeah. And it's tough for them because they're going to be trying to gain chemistry between each other in a very shortened training camp. You know, usually like you said, deals like this go down June, July, and you usually have like some pickup games in the summer to kind of familiarize yourself with each other. That's, that's not happening this year. And this team's kind of being built on the fly. They also re-signed Bertans five years. I think it was 80 million was the number also signed Lopez to a one-year deal. What do those two players do for this team and, and roster construction wise? You know, I, I look at the East, it's a lot of good teams, some great teams at the top, but you know, we were joking about it earlier off at Mike, like these are two teams, you know, the magic, the wizards, Charlotte, you know, Atlanta is kind of in there at the bottom they're all battling for like that eight through 10 spot. Is this a team that's good enough to be in um, the playoffs this year? Yeah. You know, I, I struggle to come up with who's actually going to be in the playoffs because there's a lot of teams that feel like they're the exact same. Yes. Well, that's definitely true. But even on top of that, now with the play in tournament, it's like, if you, if you ask me, who do you think is going to get the eight seed? You're asking me, who do you think is going to win a game between the Hawks and one game between the Hawks and the Wizards in May? Like, I don't know who's going to win that game. I don't know who's going to be ineligible because of COVID protocols in May. You know, <laughs> like, I can't predict that. So, You're just so at least starts at this point. Exactly. I mean, we're throwing darts with the standings going into this year anyway, because Lord knows what games are going to be canceled and what games are going to be awkward because a team is missing half of its roster or whatever. So, I mean, we're throwing, we're throwing crazy darts at this point anyway, but um, in terms of where they stand during the regular season, uh, I would definitely put them in that range. I mean, I put them somewhere maybe eight or nine along with Atlanta. I'm lower on Charlotte. I don't, 
Charlotte's guards can be very inefficient. They shoot the three ball well, but there is there is a chance that Charlotte's top three guards all shoot worse than 40% on twos, which is just something that could really limit them. I think the Wizards offense could be really, really good. And I think their defense could do the exact same thing in the opposite direction. They're, they're to me, one of the ultimate, you know, like Bill Simmons does his league pass rankings. Like they, they could be real high in the league pass rankings because you could put together lineups of Westbrook, Bertans, Beal, Thomas Bryant, and then whoever you want in that third spot, whether it's Rui Hachimura or Troy Brown or Isak Bonga, the offense in that lineup is outrageous. And the defense in that lineup is not the best. So I am so curious where they're going to end up. They seem to me like an equally as good as offense as they are down on defense team, which says to you somewhere around 500, give or take. But we'll see. Like, I'm still feeling out this roster, to be honest. Like, I don't, I don't have a great feel on where they're at because if they're just below average defensively, like they're somewhere in the 18 to 22 range and points allowed per possession and they end up getting up to fifth in offense. I mean, then we're talking about a 45 to 48 win team, and that's obviously a different tier. But that to me is like the absolute best case scenario, especially defensively, where they made some upgrades defensively. They brought in Robin Lopez, like you said. I think they expect some internal development from some of the young guys. Maybe they end up playing Isak Bonga some more minutes there. But Ultimately, they still are going to be playing a lot of players. You know, they expect uh, internal development from Thomas Bryant too. But ultimately, you're still playing a lot of players who are offense-first players. And when you have an offense-first roster, you tend to get an offense-first team. Fred, uh, you've been really generous with your time, but I just have one more question for you before we let you go. So yeah, last year's rookie, last year's rookie that you mentioned, uh, Rui Hachimura, uh, averaged I think 13 and six as a rookie, work in progress. This year's first round pick, Denny Ardiha from Maccabi Tel Aviv in Israel. I mean, what do they expect out of him? I think the expectations are kind of up in the air. I don't mean to punt on the question. I just, I, I, think, uh, I think the Wizards right now are punting on a question that specific. I think long term, they see him as a guy who can be a playmaker, who has defensive versatility, um, who is, uh, you know, might, might be able to work out his jump shot. Ty, their general manager, Tommy Shepard, said that even though he did not hit a high percentage of his threes at all last year in Israel, that they don't consider his jump shot broken. They think they're going to be able to iron out the jump shot and turn him into a relatively accurate three-point shooter. I think long-term, those are the goals. At the same time, he's 19 years old. And I was asking somebody there recently, like, How's he looked? And the answer with kind of them not being able to get into their stuff and their team workouts during all the COVID protocols that didn't allow them to bring the team together until a couple of days ago, the answer was just like, we'll see. I really don't know yet. So I, I don't think they really know how NBA ready he is right now. You know, they, they haven't even had uh, Robin Lopez and, and Davis Protons into camp yet. So they're still getting their whole roster together, such as, uh, such is life in 2020, right, guys? I was, I was going to say, Fred, you put it perfectly as far as your expectations go, because that's my expectations for the entire league. Yeah. It's up in the air. We'll see how it goes, right? Like yeah. this, this year is going to be something that, you know, if college basketball is any indication of what this is going to be like, it's going to be just like a moving target each and every night. 
Yeah. I mean, look, the league standings might not normally the league standings reflect who had the best season, right? That, that is the point of the league standings. The league standings might just reflect who had the healthiest season. Yeah. It's that's possible. I mean, that's a disaster scenario, but unfortunately we're living in a disaster scenario. So I'm not really <laughs> ruling anything out. Hey, the, the fact that we have the NBA this year after the long season that they just had after the playoff run that they just had, I'm just happy to have regular season basketball back on our TVs. I'm happy to have people like you reporting on teams. And Fred, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us, man. This was great. Yeah, thanks so much for thinking of me. I appreciate you having me. Anytime. Make sure to check out his podcast. It's Wizards After Dark. You can catch his stuff on The Athletic. Appreciate you. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thank you to Fred Katz of The Athletic for sharing his knowledge about the Wizards and the upcoming season for them. Should be pretty interesting to see how it all works out with uh, Russell Westbrook uh, in the nation's capital. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows here. Uh, the Mike Wise Show, which drops each Monday, had Stefan Bondi of the New York Daily News this week with some great takes on the Knicks and the Nets. Uh, full Court with Fisher and... Okay, have Marcus Howard, uh, Denver Nuggets rookie who played for Marquette last season with some nice takes. Uh, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, which will come your way on Thursday, is scheduled to have Seth Greenberg, the ESPN College Hoop analyst. Um, BJ Armstrong, Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast on Friday. And next Wednesday, Aaron Berlin, my good man, and Otto Strong. We miss you, Otto. Those guys will be back with Catch and Shoot 2.0 from Pure Hoops Media. Otto always gets the benefit of working those late-night Dallas Cowboys games that get, yet get moved to Tuesday, so we're excited to have Otto back. But we also just want to say this is the part of the show where we tip our cap to all of our essential workers out there. You know, we recorded this show on a Tuesday, and today is the first official day that a vaccine was distributed in some part of the world. And so while there is a vaccine and people are having it, it still doesn't alleviate some of the things that we have been doing over the course of the last seven to eight months. So if you're washing your hands a little bit longer, someone else is appreciating it. If you're wearing a mask, someone that you're passing by, someone that you come into contact with appreciates the work that you are doing. And of course, a tip of the cap to all of our essential workers out there. We cannot say thank you enough for the sacrifice that you continue to make each and every day. But with that, Bruce, this is fun. This has been great. Always good to have you on. It's always great joining you. And uh, Otto, keep getting that paper out. We'll see you next week. Absolutely. We'll see you guys next week. But until then, enjoy hoops. Captain Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.